Hey friends, welcome back for another episode of Transform Your Workplace. For you loyal listeners out there, uh, I apologize that we missed last week. Uh, there's been just so much going on and uh, had some different priorities. I do have a lot of material recorded. Um, in fact, I probably uh, I could stop podcasting right now and have material all the way through August, but I want to keep giving you relevant stuff. And so I'm shifting things around. And uh, one of the things I was working on last week, which I will share on the podcast uh, when it takes place, but you know, with all this this talk about racism and uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and all that, we're we're turning around a, a panel, an executive panel, talking about how they're they're uh, addressing these issues that were going on right now uh, in their workplace with their employees and what they're doing to use their platform for good. So it's uh, taking place this week. So you're you're listening to this likely on Tuesday when this releases. On Thursday, we're doing the webinar and we have like 300 people signed up and, and I expect even possibly 400 will will register. So when that when that's done, I will probably clip the audio and put it on the podcast because it's going to be relevant. It's not even it's not specific to Oregon or anything like that where where I'm located. It's going to be specific uh, probably globally uh, and probably mostly to the United States. Uh, anyways, so that's what's kind of going on. In addition to that, we're doing tons of webinars and, and other forms of content virtually. So if you're interested in any of that material related to coronavirus, returning to work, any of that, you can go to zenimhr.com forward slash webinars and you can get all the old recordings. All of it's free too. So feel free and, and I'll put a link in the show notes too so you know where to go. Okay, on to today's episode. I had this conversation a while back. It was with Robert Chestnut. He is the chief ethics officer at Airbnb. He wrote a book called Intentional Integrity, and it's such a such a good book. And the ideas are amazing. So he's an attorney, uh, lawyer by trade, um, and he basically says like there are things that we do that are unethical in business or we need to set boundaries and rules and things like that. We need to talk about them a lot too. So it's part of this is a culture conversation, but part of this is like, what can you do as an employer to make sure that you set the appropriate boundaries? And so we go, we go pretty deep in certain areas. And I, I thought this was such a good read. Honestly, I thought it was I thought it was a great book. So, hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, touch the surface of the the whole topic in the conversation. So, I encourage you to go pick up the book because I loved it. Um, so, anyways, let me know what you thought about the the conversation. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram or one of those places, and just uh, let me know what you're thinking about the content and and uh, how we're doing overall. Have a great day. Be safe and. Be well. Hey, Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here, Brandon. Uh, your book, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead Any Ethical Revolution. 
What a piece of work. It's great. I haven't quite read a book like this before. I think business leaders in today's modern world need this. Why did you write it? Well, you know, it started at the time I was the general counsel at Airbnb. The story started coming out. Things at Uber, I think what really started it. Susan Fowler's blog about the problems at Uber, issues at Google, Facebook. It was the beginning of TechLash. And as these stories started coming out, I'm a big fan of learning from other people's mistakes. So I started thinking, what could we do at Airbnb that could learn from these other companies' problems? What can we do to intentionally drive integrity into the culture of our company? It struck me. Now, as I look back over my career, how do companies do this? How do companies make integrity a part of their culture? You know, I was a little embarrassed when I kind of realized they don't do very much. Traditionally, companies will do things like they'll get a code of ethics, but their law firm will send them a code of ethics, or they'll download one off the internet from another company, and they'll stick their logo on top, <laughs> yeah. right? And they'll email yeah. it out to the whole company and say, check a box and say you've read it, and then you won't hear about it again. Or they'll put up a compliance poster in a break room, or they'll send out some third-party video about sexual harassment that'll be two hours long, and everybody's got to click through it. And that's it. And it struck me. You know what? If you really cared about integrity, is that the way you do it? Those things are compliance. Those are things that you have to do to technically comply with the law, but they're not things that you do to really send a message to your employees that integrity matters. I went to our CEO, Brian Chesky, and talked to him about this. Brian, being Brian, looked at me and said, go big. That gave me permission, I think, to sort of explore this area and do some things at Airbnb that maybe weren't typical, but needed. And that was really the genesis for the book. You wrote that you're more convinced than ever that all businesses have a great opportunity right at this moment to step into a leadership void and chart a proactive ethical course that is good for their full slate of stakeholders. Define what a stakeholder is in the spectrum of how you're describing it in this. And and why do you believe that this is the right moment? Traditionally, companies have had one stakeholder, Mm -hmm. and that stakeholder is the investor. You know, you always heard this when you were in business. Do whatever's right for the shareholder. The shareholder's first. So if it's good for the shareholder, it's good for the company. By the way, that was even put into the law. That meant that everything was very financial. And it became a world where do whatever's right for the shareholder today. So in other words, if it brings up the stock price today or this week or this quarter, let's do it. Even though it it isn't the right thing long term. And that type of short-term thinking has ruled the day, and I think it's led to a number of ethical issues. What I'm talking about now, though, is a new approach that recognizes that there's more than just one stakeholder. So today's modern company, in my mind, most of them have four. One of them is certainly their investors, and I'm nothing that I write about suggests that investors aren't important. But there's more than that. Employees are a stakeholder. Your customers our stakeholder. And the community that you operate at is also a stakeholder. So what does it mean to be a stakeholder? A stakeholder means that's a group of people that you need to be thinking about when you're making important decisions. And you need to consider what is the impact your decision that you're thinking about? What's the impact of that decision going to be on your stakeholders? It's hard to make decisions that benefit all four stakeholders. Most decisions may benefit one or two stakeholders and may hurt one or two, and that's okay. But considering 
How are these shareholders each going to be impacted by the decision? And over time, making sure that you're taking care of each of the stakeholders and balancing the interest. That's what a modern 21st century company needs to do. Because if you're only thinking about shareholders and you're doing things that aren't good for your employees, not good for your customers, and not good for the communities that you serve, ultimately, that's going to be bad for your business as well in the long term. It's going to end up hurting the shareholders. The world I'm talking about thinks about all stakeholders, all four stakeholders. And if you're thinking about all four stakeholders, the ironic thing is I think ultimately your shareholders are going to win in the long term. It seems like with this intentional integrity idea that you're bringing to the table, it seems like it's a long-term play. It's something that will allow a business to sustain for the long-term versus the short-term thing that you described earlier. Our CEO at Airbnb, he doesn't like it when we use the word long-term. He calls it an infinite time horizon. Ooh, I like that. He said, you know, don't, I I think it's a concept that comes from Simon Sinek and his works and his writings. It's the idea that you're not looking at a particular date, like what is my number going to be this quarter or what is my annual number going to be? You're trying to build a company that will sustain itself indefinitely. And we all would recognize that that's practically impossible. You know, most companies don't last that long when you think about it. You know, think about the great companies of just 20, 30, 40 years ago. They are either out of business or they are largely irrelevant today. And in fact, even Jeff Bezos has said that one day Amazon will go out of business. And he views it as his job to delay that day for as long as possible. This is just another way of thinking about it. Do what is best for the long, long, long term for the company. And ultimately, I think that will be good for longevity of the company and the shareholders. You said a little bit ago, and you wrote it in your book too, but companies will often have a code of ethics, slap their logo on it, and that's pretty much it. Or they'll do a harassment training and that sort of checks the box and they're sort of done. It seems to me with intentional integrity, it needs to be kind of a shared and owned. It definitely starts with leadership, but it needs to be shared broadly throughout the organization and within the community too. So what sort of principles are you really calling to promote? If there's any sort of standard principles that you think that every organization needs to have? Every company is unique. Every company's culture is unique. And sort of, I think the point of the book is not, you know, here's Rob coming down from the mountain with his stone tablet of, these are the ethics that everybody has to adopt. That's not it at all. I don't know any more than anybody else. But what the book is about really is a call to think about it. It's a call to go on the journey to think about what do you want your culture to be? Whatever it is, I think it probably needs to include some element of how do you treat each other inside the company? Treating others with respect and dignity, I think, is part of every company's culture. Because, look, you can't be a company that does good in the world if on the inside you don't do good. A code of ethics at its base is a shared work between leaders and employees where you attempt to define what it means to treat people well. So let me give you an example. Let's take relationships. What we've seen in the news over the last several years is leaders are often derailed by sex. They are derailed by attempting to use their position of power in a company to get sex. And so employees and companies need to define, what do you expect from your leader? So my book would propose 
a board ought to sit down with a CEO when they hire them or after they read the book and say, you know, CEO, a lot of companies' brands have been tarnished and a lot of leaders have lost trust and confidence over sexual relations inside the company. So we need to have a rule around this to protect the company. And what should your rule be? Like at Airbnb, we all sat down in a room, the leaders of the company, the executive team. And I looked at everybody around the table and said, look, we don't want the sort of problems that a number of other companies have had in this regard. Why don't we just make an agreement amongst ourselves that we will not engage in a romantic relationship with any vendor or any employee in the company? And as leaders, just agree that we're not going to do it and put it in the code of ethics, that that's what's expected from the executive team. Now, employees can have relationships with each other, but the executive team shouldn't do it because of the imbalance of power. And we all looked at each other around the room. And one person looked at me and said, well, Rob, you know, we're all in romantic relationships or married anyway. It doesn't really matter. And I said, look, based on what I'm reading in the news, that doesn't stop people. That is not stopping people. No. And then there was some nervous laughter around the room. And we went around and one by one, we all looked at each other in the eye and said, I agree. We're not going to do it. And I put it in the code of ethics. We tell employees that during orientation. And now we're all bought in. And I remind all of the leaders on the executive team now, once a year, I have a sit-down meeting with them. And we go through some of the key elements. I remind them of that promise. And it does two things. One, it sends a great message to the company that this is important to leadership. And it's a promise that leadership isn't going to behave this way. The very fact that we have made that promise publicly makes it a lot less likely that anybody is going to break it. And secondly, if anybody does break it, it makes it really easy. The consequences are quite easy because you can't have a rule like that and be public about it and not enforce it. So if anybody breaks the rule, they'll have to leave the company. And as a result, Airbnb has you know, avoided some of the problems that some other companies have had in this area simply because we've been intentional about it. Yeah, it seems like when you talk about it and you are intentional about it, it's more likely that people are going to understand what's right from wrong. A quote that I liked in the book, it said that silence about integrity creates ambiguities about right and wrong that makes everyone in an organization a little uncertain, a little nervous. Regrettably, a minority of people will exploit that uncomfortable silence to rationalize selfish behavior End quote. And I think that's such a great point. I think when you don't talk about things, it does leave things open to interpretation. And I think you'd even talked about in the book, your time at eBay and how, you know, early on in the days where there wasn't a lot of payment processing happening, people just really have to go on blind faith that they're going to get their whatever they bought. And the exchange of money was like via check or cash or however it was going, but there are a small group of people that will exploit it. And so you probably have to set ground rules. Talk about that because I thought it was a really good point. Yeah, it's interesting. What's most interesting about this is as human beings, we are all susceptible to interpreting rules in our own favor. It's not just a small group of people. All of us will interpret rules in a way that will benefit ourselves. It's apparently normal human nature. There's a guy at a behavioral scientist by the name of Dan Ariely, and I went and spent a day with him. He's written books and movies all about human behavior. And what he taught me is that ambiguity is the enemy of integrity. Silence is the enemy of integrity. Because in that kind of an environment, we are all going to fudge. 
we're all going to look at a situation through our own eyes and interpret a phrase like do the right thing in a way that will benefit us. The problem is that particularly if you are in a really creative workforce, creative people are very good at coming up with creative ways to rationalize their own behavior. That sort of environment is one that's going to have a lot of integrity problems because everyone will end up rationalizing behavior that we should know is wrong unless there's clarity around the rule. People will figure out a way to do it, to break the rule, and still feel good about themselves. I don't know about you, Robert, but I tend to lead with trust. And I also think that most people are generally good. Do you think that it's clear to most people about what's right and wrong? Or do you think that you know leaders need to keep restating what we believe in as an organization and the ethics that we're going to abide by? What's your take on all that? I think you have to restate it. I think you have to communicate it clearly in a very human way. And I think you have to repeat it. Adam Silver at the NBA, he's a leader, I, by the way, I really respect. And he talked to me about this and he said, it's like television advertising. He said, you don't run a television ad once and expect that you're going to get your point across. You've got to run the same ad multiple times before people really, it gets ingrained into people's heads and you start to really get your point. It's the same thing with communicating as a leader around things like ethics. You have to make your point multiple times in multiple ways to make sure that people really understand it. You know, just saying it once or leaving it open to interpretation, it doesn't work. Since you talked about Adam Silver, I'm a huge NBA fan and I love him as a leader. I think like you, I respect him a lot. And the handling of the whole Donald Sterling situation where he was basically recorded saying racist remarks and it was a good opportunity to evaluate and basically push him out of the league. Do you like the way Adam handled that? And I mean, you talk about it in your book a lot. What do you think about the whole? Yeah, he shared with me some thoughts behind it. One thing that he said struck him in thinking about it. You know, he was a new commissioner at that point. So it was a real kind of early test for him. And he said, look, I think he first found out about it on a Friday, like on a Friday night. On Saturday was the first time he actually heard the audio recording. And I think by the following Tuesday, he had basically thrown Donald Sterling out of the league. He said the speed with which things happen today is startling. Things move so quickly. What impressed me is, as a new leader, he was able to so quickly figure out what was the right thing to do. And he handed down what was at the time the most harsh punishment against any major professional sports owner in the history of professional sports. And he did it as a new commissioner basically over the course of a weekend. But he was able to figure out, at essence, what was right and wrong. And one thing he shared with me was that he thinks the secret to good leadership is being open to listening. He talked to a number of people who gave him good advice. He listened, but he had excellent judgment and I think was able to discern right away that this was something that was big, what was fundamentally wrong, and recognizing what was the right thing for the league in the long run. And he acted. He's on the front lines quite a bit when it comes to ethical issues. With the virus, you know, the coronavirus, yeah. you know, he was the first major sports commissioner that acted and he acted immediately, basically to suspend the entire season. Not an easy thing to do, but in hindsight, again, it has proven to be the right call. I admire how he is able to take on these tough ethical decisions in a very fast paced environment and discern what the right thing to do is. Those are two really good examples too, like the Donald Sterling thing and then the coronavirus where he canceled the season. And it makes me believe that he 
does such a great job in acting fast and fact finding like Donald Sterling, for example, that situation, I think I remember, I mean, maybe you stated in your book that he's like, we don't even know if this is Donald Sterling. And behind the scenes, they're probably doing a huge investigation. They're probably asking a ton of people to basically verify if that's his voice. And I don't know what they did behind the scenes, but maybe same with coronavirus too. They like, how serious is this? And when they canceled it, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to take this seriously now. Right. When you're making a tough ethical decision, you can't rush too quickly either. You've got to make sure you get your facts and you've got to be fair to all concerned. Doing this sort of stuff well, you know, doing it right, it isn't always clear. He is able to do that. And I'll give you another example of the way the NBA has operated. I think the NBA's labor situation, this stands out to me as one that is generally quite cooperative. The players in the league, I think, recognize that they have a common interest to work well together and to work closely together because they have so much in common and their success depends on each other. And I think he's been able to establish a trust with the players in the league so that they are able to accomplish things that other professional sports leagues have not been able to do. And in fact, other professional sports leagues have had some real ethical challenges. Look at the Houston Astros and look at what baseball has gone through just recently. I think everyone would recognize that baseball's decisions in this area have not been universally recognized as being good ones. They have not made good, strong, ethical decisions. They have not operated well with principles. You can go back to steroids as well. The principles that you lay out, if you're intentional about it and you drive it through the culture of an organization, you're less likely to have those sorts of problems that baseball has had. And baseball, I don't think, has done a good job. This goes back to the point you made earlier about how stakeholders, it's more than just the investor, because that Houston Astros issue, you have other players across the league that are frustrated. You have owners that are probably frustrated. Fans are probably just dropping like flies right now. Think about sponsors. It goes well beyond just the owners, and it goes beyond the players. It's everybody. Well, you'll make better decisions if you recognize that you have multiple stakeholders. When Adam Silver was faced with the decision around the virus, a commissioner that thought of his role as protecting one stakeholder only, right, the financial interest, would not have made the right decision. They would have been frozen by the fact that suspending the season would cost so much money to the league and all the owners, right? But Adam Silver, I think, recognized, no, I've got a broader obligation to the safety of the players here. And I've got an obligation even to the NBA community and to the fans not to put fans in a position where they could contract the virus in these games. And maybe even an obligation to the broader society to let everyone know that this is an important issue that we need to take seriously. And I think by recognizing that he operates in that broader environment, I think he was able to come up with a decision that people now generally recognize and respect as being the right one. If leaders want to really transform their organizations and really step up their game, so to speak, from an ethics standpoint. What are some of those core components in intentional integrity? Because you list the six C's. I love the way you outline this. The first thing you have to do is you have to start at the top. You know, the first C is stands for CEO. If the leader of an organization isn't bought in to the importance of operating with integrity, if the CEO is not bought in, then you're wasting your time. Because in fact, you'll even be hypocritical. You know, you can have the head of HR or the top lawyer try to put together a campaign and focus on it. But if the CEO is not bought in, 
then your organization is not going to be run with ethics and integrity as a core component. You're not going to make decisions thinking about ethics and integrity and multiple stakeholders. All you're going to do, I think, is ultimately waste your time. So the first element to me is have a talk with your CEO and your board. Make sure that you're aligned as an organization from the top that this is important. If you have that alignment, then all things are possible. But without it, nothing's possible. You have to start there. And I think from there, you need to embark on an effort to understand your culture and understand what it means to be ethical in the context of your company. Different companies can take different approaches to problems and still all be ethical. One example I give in the book is how a company deals with gifts from third-party vendors. You know, if you're in business, it's not unusual to have business partners or vendors give you gifts at the holidays or, you know, maybe offer to take you to a ball game or send you a bottle of wine. What's ethical to accept? Walmart, I have friends at Walmart, done business with Walmart. Walmart takes one approach. Their rule is you can't take anything. By that, I mean, they can be quite strict. I've been in meetings with folks from Walmart where if you offer them a bottle of water, they pull a dollar out of their pocket. And why? Why do they do that? It's because Walmart as a company is so focused on lowest prices every day for their customers. That's what they're about as an organization. And they believe that if their employees are accepting gifts, the cost of those gifts will ultimately be reflected in the cost of goods and then be passed on to customers. So Walmart believes strongly that gifts to employees are inconsistent with their core mission. So that's how they handle it. Take another organization. Take Airbnb. Well, Airbnb is in the hospitality business. So when they deal with business partners and vendors, Airbnb employees are allowed to accept small gifts that are consistent with something that you would ordinarily give a business partner. And we set a dollar limit of $200. If it's under $200, it might be lunch, might be dinner, might even be one ticket to a ball game. We think that's consistent with hospitality and enjoying something with a business partner to learn about something going on in a community. So that works for Airbnb. Now, each company might have a rule on this that works for their particular culture. But being specific about it, recognizing that it's an issue, and then coming up with something that works for your business is actually important to define. The chapter on the 10 most common integrity issues was very enlightening. And dare I say a little entertaining that people act this way? What are a couple of the most frequently dealt with issues that you've dealt with over the years that come up time and time again and that you know employers listening to this hopefully could avoid? Alcohol in the workplace is a great example. Over the course of my career, you know, I think I've been a lawyer for 30 years. And as the lawyer, I'm often the guy that has to deal with the problems, right? When an employee does something wrong. So often problems, you know, where employees do something wrong, the act that they do that's inappropriate is preceded by consuming too much alcohol. Every workforce needs to think about what is their relationship with alcohol? Do they have alcohol available in the office that's freely available to employees? You know, a lot of tech companies have alcohol available on tap in the office and just trust the employees to do the right thing. Or companies will throw parties, you know, big holiday parties where there's an open bar and a lot of alcohol is consumed. In my mind, 
those sorts of environments can create some ethical challenges. Now, I'm all for having a glass of wine in a work setting or a beer, but I've made a personal rule for myself that I'm never going to consume more than two drinks in any work setting. And I talk about this to employees at Airbnb. Everybody knows it as Rob's rule. Rob's rule is a two-drink rule. I have a two-drink rule because I know myself. I know that I can consume up to two drinks, even if I'm tired, even if I haven't had a lot of food, and I'm not going to do anything dumb that's going to screw up my career. But the third drink, I don't know. My career's worth more than that. So I tell everybody in the company, look, you don't need to adopt my rule, but you need to have a personal rule around alcohol and work. Make that rule in advance. The worst time to make a decision about how much alcohol you should be drinking in a work setting is while you're drinking alcohol in a work setting. Yet that's what so many people do, and they'll drink too much in a work setting, and then they will say something inappropriate. They will engage in a sexual assault. They'll do something dumb that will end up screwing up their entire career. So think about that stuff in advance. As an employer, don't just routinely throw a big alcohol infused holiday party just because that's the way you've always done it or that's the way you did it at your previous company. Think about what sort of a message you're sending. Maybe tailor your work party so that alcohol isn't at the center of it. And that way you may avoid a number of problems, a number of ethical issues that have ensnared other companies. Yeah, one thing you wrote about the alcohol parties or not having it basically serve for six hours straight, that would not be a good idea. But you said like, you know, a couple hours because then people can't be slamming drinks all night. Because I agree that, and I'm glad you started with the alcohol. It's not like you're saying like, we got to get rid of alcohol together from the work environment. But too much of it can lead to harassment. It could lead to inappropriate relationships. It could lead to altercations. It could lead to saying something to a client that shouldn't be said, you know, it could just create all these issues that don't need to happen in the first place. You know, every company should do some thinking. You know, the executive team ought to sit around the room and think about what's our relationship with alcohol going to be? Like some companies, for example, like if you're operating heavy equipment and heavy machinery, the answer might be, you know what, there's not going to be any in the workplace at all. And then all you have to do is think about gatherings outside of the workplace and holiday parties and the like. Other companies like Airbnb, there is alcohol available in the workplace, but only for a limited time period every day and only with food and under uh, circumstances that don't encourage excessive consumption. It's one of those things that I think companies need to be thinking about and need to define for themselves as part of their culture. One of the codes that I absolutely had to ask you before we parted ways was code number 10 in that one chapter, social media. How do you advise, maybe you don't do advising, but maybe you encourage people not to use social media a certain way when it comes to employees? I mean, this is a muddy area where employees could say something that could just go against everything that you believe. So how are you kind of handling that? It's a muddy area. But again, the way to deal with muddy areas is to provide some specific guidance. So many companies just don't say anything to employees about it. So it's almost like they're closing their eyes to the reality that their employees are on social media all the time. And even while they're working, employees need some guidance around what they should and shouldn't be doing on social media. There are things like employees should be clear when they're on social media, when they are posting on behalf of the company, and when they are posting their own personal opinion. 
So for example, if you're in the comms group of a particular company, you've got to be particularly careful because you speak for the company when you're on social media. Whereas if you are in customer support and you don't usually speak for the company, but you've got a private LinkedIn account, it might be a lot clearer that when you post an opinion, it's your private opinion. But you still have to recognize that even your private opinion might reflect poorly on the company. If, for example, the opinion is racist, or if it is attacks a particular gender or a particular religion. So companies ought to provide some guidance to employees about, yes, there's freedom of speech. Yes, we want you to be able to freely express your views when you're on social media. But there are a few things that you should not be doing because they can reflect very poorly on the company's brand and affect your employment. What I found is that employees appreciate the clarity and appreciate knowing. They may not even agree with the guidance you give, but just having clarity around what's appropriate and not appropriate can alleviate fear and I think provide a better environment in the workplace and make it easier for a company to act when something does go over the line. In closing our conversation, I wanted to mention a quote that I think sums up everything perfectly. It says, as a company's leader, you either embrace integrity or wait for the day when the world will force you there, end quote. In what ways is the world going to force leaders there? Maybe we're already at a point where leaders are being forced. Well, they're being forced there, but there are so many companies that aren't thinking about it. And then, you know, again, to go back to the Adam Silver example with Donald Sterling, the world will suddenly force you there with a decision that you must make in 48 hours. 48 hours isn't a lot of time. You don't want to be forced to make a decision, a critical business decision on an important ethical issue without having any thought behind it. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is Cloudflare. You know, Cloudflare is a Silicon Valley company that provides security services to websites that help protect a website against hackers. Cloudflare, for the first few years of its existence, took the position that we're going to provide our services to everyone. We are neutral as to content. We are only concerned with the provision of these network security to all. And that's fine until one day the word came out that there was a website that was encouraging a wide variety of highly unethical activity, offensive activity that essentially encouraged gun violence. Then the world realizes, well, we may not be able to stop the website from operating because they may be out of reach. But here we have the Silicon Valley company that's protecting this offensive website from hacker attacks, making money, making money from this offensive website. And so the world then suddenly turns the spotlight on Cloudflare. Should you be making money and protecting this offensive website? You know, initially, the company took the view, we don't judge content. We're not going to judge. We don't want to make those sorts of judgments. That gets messy. The world wasn't satisfied with that answer. And it forced the company. Ultimately, the CEO made the right decision. The CEO recognized, you know what? It might be easier not to make ethical judgments. But it's fundamentally wrong for us to do business with a company, with a website that's advocating that sort of violence. It's fundamentally wrong for us to protect them and make money. So the world forced Cloudflare to make that sort of a decision. And I think all companies, if they haven't had to make those sorts of ethical decisions yet, their day is coming. 
and you need to be ready for it and think about it in advance. Well, as you said in the book, dishonesty is contagious, but so is integrity. And I think more stories like that and a book like Intentional Integrity that you have coming out here shortly is what we need to keep hearing. We need to keep talking about it because integrity is contagious. Right. Again, the book won't give you answers to your ethical problems. But you know what the book tries to do is to get you to think about how to chart a course where you can come up with the best ethical decisions for your particular company and your particular culture. And I think today, more than ever, that's so important for companies to do. Well, our guest today has been Robert Chestnut. He's the chief ethics officer at Airbnb and author of the new book, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Robert, thanks for coming on. Where can people find more about the book or anything that you're up to? The book is available at Amazon. And I love independent bookstores. It'll be available at all the independent bookstores as well. If you want information about the book or you know, other ways to think about integrity, you can go to my website, www.intentionalintegrity.com. Thanks, Robert. Take care, Brandon.